You're listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 123, speaking Aymara, Quechua, and Bolivian Spanish. Hello, language lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, the podcast in conversation with multilinguals. This week, my guest Shana Inofuentes joins me to talk about her languages of Aymara, Quechua, and Bolivian Spanish. In this episode, we talk about so much more than just the languages of the region, as Shana tells her story of being part of the largest Quechuan and the largest Bolivian community in the U.S., located in the Washington, D.C. area. We talk about the special bond she had with her grandmother that forged a deep connection with Quechua and Aymara languages and culture. We learn about the influences of indigenous languages on the syntax of Bolivian and Andean Spanish, and how we hear these three languages being used in the city of La Paz. Shana and I share a moment of reflection on identity and the nature of anchoring oneself in a new reality, and we talk about how the younger generation views their indigenous language and practices. Shana is the founder of the Quechua Project, which she tells us all about in this episode, and we talk about why having a community organization like this is of utmost importance to the diaspora. Big thank you to Shana for sharing your language and culture with all of us. Be sure to click the link in the show notes to find information on how to donate to Shana's upcoming documentary that we discussed in this episode. If you like episodes of Speaking Tongues, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Speaking Tongues podcast on Apple Podcasts, and like and subscribe on YouTube so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. And if you've been a longtime listener of the show or even a recent listener, you can now pledge ongoing support for the show on buymeacoffee.com or on patreon.com. For just $5 a month, you'll have access to excerpts from this conversation that did not make it to the full published episode. And as you know, I wrote a book. My Food Zine of International Language and Cuisine, Taste Buds Volume 1, is available now for purchase. Check social media for the sneak peek inside the book and make sure that you purchase one for yourself and one for your friends. Links to all platforms are in the show notes. Okay, let's chat. Welcome back to another episode of Speaking Tongues. I'm here today with Shauna. How are you today, Shauna? I'm doing wonderfully, especially because I'm getting to talk to you. Oh, I'm so <laughs> happy. all of our listeners. Yeah, here. I'm so excited to talk to you too. And um, especially because, you know, you're in Bolivia right now. And Bolivia just sounds amazing. We'll get to that later in this episode. But I'm so happy and thankful for you joining from Bolivia today and to have this conversation with me. I like to start each episode with the same question, and that is, what is your first language and which languages have you learned to speak? Um, my first languages were Spanish and English. I was told that my first word was in Spanish. And... Um, on top of that, I was also exposed in my family and was taught a little bit of Aymara, which is the indigenous language of most of my family in South America, in mm -hmm. the Bolivian highlands. And in my community growing up, I was exposed to Quechua. Now, I would try to learn a little bit of Aymara with my abuelita, my grandmother growing up, but I didn't learn to speak fluently. And now um, I am studying Aymara and Quechua to a degree. I'm also mixed heritage. So on my father's side, I am uh, Aymara from the Bolivian Valleys in Yungas with a little bit of Quechua background as well. And on my mother's side, I am Ashkenazi Jewish. So growing up, I was also exposed to Hebrew, but more for religious uh, purposes. But I have some, I know how to read Hebrew and I know have some training in Hebrew. My grandmother on my Jewish side uh, spoke Yiddish. My, both my grandparents did, but I mostly heard her speak Yiddish. Uh, so I was exposed to that as well, but I never uh, set out to learn Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. 
like Yiddish is so interesting to me. And it wasn't until I started this podcast that I didn't know that Yiddish was like, I didn't know Yiddish was like a real language. I thought it was like a way of talking like a slang like I didn't know that it was <laughs> yeah because I'd always heard people say like oh that's Yiddish or this is a, a Yiddish word for such and such and I just you know regretfully you know I dismissed it but then once I started this podcast and I started talking to people and I learned like oh wait like people really still not only still speak Yiddish but they also like it's like a whole language and I had so much to learn and it's so interesting to me yeah, you know, that's actually also the case, believe it or not, with a lot of Native American languages, including Aymara and Quechua. There is sometimes this perception or misunderstanding that they're like dialects or you're not really knowing that there's like the, the, they're actually full-blown languages with with a whole family language, family group and stuff like that. Yeah, there's there are a lot of languages out there in the world. And I think it's it's fascinating to me to think about how humans have created these languages languages throughout history you know yeah. through their various migratory patterns I mean, it's just it's just amazing and awesome yeah definitely so tell us about your journey to uh learning Aymara to learning Quechua um and how your family connection played a part in speaking and learning to speak these languages um and tell us about the connection you know that you had with your grandmother through these languages as well yeah so I grew up hearing my abuelita speak Aymara, but she lived in Bolivia and I grew up in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the U.S.'s largest Bolivian community, which is in the D.C. metro area, mostly on the Virginia side. Um, it is also the U.S.'s largest Quechua community. So I also grew up hearing Quechua spoken in community spaces. Mm-hmm. When I would visit my grandmother and I would see her um, you know, I'd ask her to teach me some words, some phrases. But besides that, my father, he understands Aymara, but doesn't really feel comfortable enough to speak it. Uh, he taught us how to greet when we were little and how to respond in some basic niceties, how to count. And Bolivian Spanish is full of Aymara and full of Quechua. <laughs> so even where we think we're speaking Spanish, but our syntax, the way we pronounce in a lot of words mm-hmm. are in those languages. And I always thought that I would, you know, learn to speak Aymara fluently. It was one of my goals. And um, this is back before smartphones, and my grandmother lived in Bolivia most of the time. So I didn't have a lot of access to learning from her. And and mind you, there are a lot of dialects of Quechua and Aymara. So I wanted to speak our family's Aymara from the Sorata Valley, northern La Paz Valley region. So it's a different kind of Aymara than spoken just anywhere. You can't just go online and find your Aymara to be able to speak with their family. You can't just go online and find the specific kind of Quechua usually to speak with their family. Right. There are some standardized versions, but it doesn't really help you when you want to speak with your community and with your family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to really, really speak like them. So um, it was always my goal, you know, um, then life gets busy. You grow up, <laughs> I had a family. And I wasn't able to come back to Bolivia as often as I wanted to. I thought my grandmother would live forever. My abuelita was strong. I mean, she could walk farther than any of us, you know, even in her little traditional dress shoes. Um, you know, she she could withstand the cold. I mean, she was just like a champion. But one day cancer got her. Oh. And it happened so quickly. And yeah, and unfortunately, she passed away about eight years ago. I'm so sorry. I couldn't come back to Bolivia for a while because it was not. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things, right? It's life. And I, I couldn't come back to Bolivia for a while because it just wasn't the same without her. Six years after her death passed, I decided, you know what? I'm ready. Going back. I miss Bolivia way too much. I got to go home. And I came home and then I had to go to the market near my house where most of the producers, the women who come to sell their stuff, speak Aymara. I had always gone with her. She was my ticket to belonging. I'm I'm a mixed heritage, so... I don't necessarily look like I come from an Aymara speaking family. Well, I don't, not necessarily, I, I, I don't. Um, my Spanish is probably maybe a tiny bit accented. And mm. the way I carry myself, you can probably sniff out, I'm not from here. Mm. Uh, I, was, I was raised in the States. You know, I've got my way of dressing, the way of carrying myself, all that stuff. So I go to the market because I got not thinking twice about it. I've got to get something to eat. Got to buy your fruits and vegetables to cook. 
And I realized I didn't have my abuelita with me. How was I going to talk to the caseras? I was standing there and I felt so, I felt like a little leaf that had been blown off a tree. Mm. I felt, I felt so like rootless and I felt so terrible. I was like, oh my God. And I realized how much language, uh, how much, how important language is to connecting with our own people and with ourselves. And I started thinking about the process of assimilation and migration from the countryside that happened in my grandmother's and my father's generation. Like, how did this happen society-wise and all of the discrimination against um, our indigenous languages here um, and how they're not accepted really in urban spaces. They're seen as less than, they're seen as inferior and you're sort of dissuaded from learning. People are like, why would you want to speak those? People even hide the fact that they speak these languages. Mm. And then I quickly got over thinking and feeling bad for myself. And I realized that the same thing could happen in my community back home in the DC area, where a lot of my friends are like my father's generation. Their parents are the ones who speak Quechua fluently. They migrated from their indigenous rural towns directly to Virginia. And I was like, we got to do something. We got to stop this process because um, this isn't this isn't great, you know, and this is um, it's all tied to the broader process of colonial colonialization, uh, colonization, sorry, and indigenous erasure. So my experience with relearning my languages is very much uh, it's not just because I want to even when I was younger. And yeah, I wanted to. It, it, it's about when people want to relearn and, and strengthen their Quechua and Aymara, it's about pushing back against this. It's a bold act of resistance against this this centuries-long wave of indigenous erasure and violent discrimination. So it's um, it's a little bit more than just wanting to learn the language. <laughs> right, right. And I'm I'm listening to your story, and I feel like your observation in that moment, you know, especially being at the market, is just so powerful. And I would like to share a story with you. This is not about me. This is not, this is your episode, but I feel like I want to share this story because, you know, we're having a conversation, but I feel like if that's okay, do you mind if I share a story? No, I would love that. And I think this is, um, this is what it's all about, right? To spark this amongst each other. So it's, it's not, it's one-sided. I feel like, you know, you saying that about your connection to your grandmother, it reminds me about my connection to my grandmother and how, so my my mom's family, my maternal grandmother, my mom's family is originally from the Bahamas. And when I was growing up, you know, I grew up in New York City. And when I was growing up, we would go back to Nassau in the Bahamas. We'd go back every year. We'd go every summer, you know, when we had school vacation. And this was my whole life until I was maybe 19 years old. And then mm. my... my grandmother, you know, my grandmother was getting older, but when we would go back there, we would see her cousins, we would see her friends. And, you know, she was the connection. She was the one who, you know, we, we connected through. And then once my grandmother was older and she wasn't traveling anymore, and it just felt so strange to go without her because I didn't have mm -hmm. that anchor point. I didn't have that, that reference. And my grandmother passed away um, you know, we, she stopped going there in the early 2000s, but she passed away in 2016. And it's so, I'm going to say the word weird, although there's probably a better word, but it's so weird that it's just me and my mom right now. And mm. I feel so much more drawn to that part of my culture because I'm like, I don't have that anchor there. And I feel like, I feel lost you know, I feel lost. Like I don't, mm -hmm. I feel this urge to want to understand what my history is and connect and move forward and understand the progress. It's like, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm saying this, but it's, it's, it's not a fully fleshed out thought in my mind because I'm still working through it, you know, and, you know, seeing my mom get older and then realizing like, I, you know, I don't have kids of my own, but it's like, I, I'm, I'm feeling it as it's happening. So I'm, I guess I'm saying all this to say, like, I understand like that feeling, like just 
a leaf in the wind or feeling like you you're, yeah. you're you're trying to anchor yourself in this new reality um and discover and rediscover I should say your heritage in that in that way and I hope there are more people out there like us in this way that you know, can have these kind of <laughs> conversations because it's, it's, I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like it's a, it's a strange place for me to be. And I feel like, I don't know, I'm, I'm getting too off topic. Not at all. Yeah. No, it is. It, it's so, and, um, you know, thinking about the things I know that you, you might want to talk about today is, um, you know, I, I can't speak for other languages, but I feel like maybe for a, for a lot of languages, this is true. But I know for sure for when we're talking about um, indigenous languages or languages that are uh, rooted in our histories, especially if there's been strife, if there's been, uh, you know, violence or, um, you know, systemic discrimination against these languages and, and who we are. It, it is a really tied to who we are and who our history. I mean, it's just your identity. Mm-hmm. I know that happens in Bolivia and it's one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about indigenous language revitalization. And I do the work that I do in my community back in Virginia um, in studying these, these processes and um, very recent and also a lot of historical political upheaval political violence and just really terrible stuff that's happened in society Mm. um a lot of it has to do with people deciding or 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 this process of assimilation or this process of um erasing their indigeneity which Mm. is systemic which is part of just how society is set up now post-colonization and part of that process, besides changing your dress, changing where you live, uh, but also shedding your language. And then the other generation who no longer identifies with their own people, they enact violence against the, mm-hmm. the folks, their own families, their own folks, their own people who still speak those languages and decided not to leave um, those cultural markers behind. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, language, who you are, I mean, it's all all connected it very much um, gives you a sense of who you are and I think that also reclaiming it when when there's been that kind of violence is almost like a healing right Mm -hmm. because um our families our individuals have always been forced to decide between Mm -hmm. socioeconomic safety and who they are as indigenous people and so that that decision is heartbreaking right um and to be able to reclaim that and not have to give up our socioeconomic safety to say, hey, you know, I can I can speak Aymara and still be light skinned and live in the US and also speak and have two degrees. Like that's empowering and that's also healing, I think, for our previous generations. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they're not here on this earth to see it, I think they can feel it. Right. So as we're talking about about language and colonization, how do and you you touched on this a little bit earlier, but how do you see or how do you hear Aymara um, being used in the Bolivian Spanish? Like, how do you see Aymara, how do you see the the Quechua, the indigenous languages being used within the Bolivian Spanish? And is there something that is, you know, accepted about doing it? Is it something that is, um, you know, stigmatized? Is it something that is has taken on a, another language of its own? Like, how do people um, interact with one another using the more than one language in the same conversation or in within the same venue? Well, this is an exciting question because Bolivian <laughs> Spanish. Well, I think it's we're technically a dialect called Andean Spanish, and it is awesome, and it is replete with <laughs> our words um so quechua and aymara just for a little bit of background are both native to uh, um south america the andes of south america in my region where i'm from quechua and aymaras are part of the same macro ethnicity because of various um won't get into the history but you know um uh colonization and then you know changes within you know uh social structures even before the spanish came Quechua sometimes is now spoken where Aymara used to be spoken and vice versa, but hmm. we're all part of the same macro ethnicity. 
from the Kolyasuyu region, which is the Lake Titicaca, that high plateau and its surrounding valleys and cloud forest jungle. So um, we share about 30% of words. So just to give you that bit of background, and then Andean Spanish is replete with these words from both Aymara and Spanish. And it's like, oftentimes, for example, in La Paz and places like Cochabamba as well, our Spanish is almost literally a translation from our indigenous language to Spanish. So that means wow. the syntax. That means the way we pronounce our words. Yes, even like our intonations. For example, we don't use the double R like, um, I guess, quote unquote, peninsular correct Spanish is supposed to be spoken like with R. We don't say that. We say Z. <gasps> Why? Because in our languages, in our native languages, we that's how we pronounce the R. Z. Z. That's one. Syntax is another. I remember when I was little, my little cousin told me she's being very sweet. And I and I this is the reason why this stuck out in my mind is because I was already in Spanish classes. So, you know, a lot of us who are maybe native Spanish speakers <laughs> um, will take Spanish classes in high school. There's some debate as to whether that's about an EZA or it's <laughs> also to that we can learn how to write correctly and mm-hmm. how to speak, quote unquote, correctly. Right. I learned a lot there, you know, because our Spanish is very different. So um, I was at that period of life, and she told me, when I came back to Bolivia, she said, que bonita eres vos. And I was like, that's not the way that our teacher says we're supposed to say it. Mm. So the syntax, like like in English, using the, the adjective before the subject and ending with the verb, that is all Aymara and Quechua syntax, and we use that in Spanish. Now, the words, everyone in Bolivia and Andy in Bolivia especially know the word knows the word wawa. Wawa is Aymara and Quechua for baby. Mm. Everyone knows that. I mean, you don't need to even someone who is monolingual, um, they know that word. And then there are many words in Spanish, and even one that made it into English, I'll tell you in a moment, that come from Quechua and Aymara. An example is papa. In mm-hmm. Spanish, the word for potato is papa, which is orig- native to our region. We are, we were, I think, the first humans to domesticate potato. Mm-hmm. Um, but papa comes from Quechua. The word chakra, you know, where where you uh, sow your fields, that comes from Quechua. And now the word arte, which is our word for uh, dried, jerked llama meat, and then after colonization, uh, sheep meat and beef meat. That is where I understand that is where the word in English jerky comes from. Mm. That's how we say it in our languages. So it's all over. And in Bolivia, in Andean Bolivia, the vast majority of people, the majority of people from an, are identified as indigenous or come from indigenous uh, towns. And then uh, a pretty large minority are mixed um, mm-hmm. and are maybe urbanized, even if they're not I, longer, no longer uh, indigenous identifying. They, they still recognize that come from that background and only a very, very, very small portion. I think it's like 2% don't have any of that background. So most people are used, are just surrounded with these words and these, this way of being. That's so cool. Uh, Let me try to think of something a little bit, a little bit more striking. Tan lejos esta. We would say something like that in Spanish. Like it's so far and and quote unquote, correct Spanish or non-Andean Spanish, right? Uh, está tan lejos, you would say. But in Bolivian Spanish, we use the verb at the end often in colloquial Bolivian Spanish, Andean Spanish, because in Aymara and Quechua, that's the, that's the way you would form your sentence. You would end with the verb. Um, even just the way we pronounce things. Gosh, I, it's hard for me to even recognize sometimes because I'm so used to hearing this type of Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> It made me think of um, Wawa being baby in Andean Spanish, but Wawa meaning bus in parts of the Caribbean. I heard that. That's so funny. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And I've said this on other episodes, like I will forever be fascinated by how Spanish language varies so much in so many different countries, through so many different cultures and communities. I just think it's one of the most beautiful things in language. And it's, it. I think it's, it says so much about resilience. And I think it says so much about, you know, just 
heritage and community and communication. And I love it. I am not a Spanish speaker, but I am an admirer from afar of just how words do what they do in Spanish. <laughs> yeah, how how we make it our own, despite either forced removal or, you know, all of the effects of, um, yeah, just our history and colonization. We've, exactly. You know, I'm, these, these days I've been going to the Tawirando Festival here in La Paz, which is a week-long festival uh, celebrating uh, women, Afro-Bolivian women. And, um, yeah, and I've been learning some uh, they've been sharing some words in Afro-Bolivian, which I didn't know that there existed in the language Afro-Bolivian, but I think there are words mixed in there from Aymara because they're mostly in Aymara territory and also from um, African origin, some African origin words. I don't know specifically from where. I'm not sure that they even know specifically from where, but it's just fascinating. Yeah, just fascinating. Wow. An Afro-Bolivian community. I love yep. this. Oh, man, I'm excited to hear that. Um, <laughs> I really am excited to hear that. I love it. I love it. I was going to ask you um, about, so using Aymara, using your indigenous language versus using Spanish, like, are there times when someone would use one over the other? Are there times when it's like, you only speak this language with people you know or times where it's encouraged or preferred to use Spanish? Like, how is the code si code switching situation in Bolivia? Or, you know, not, you don't have to speak for the whole country, but where you are and what you're familiar with. So, yeah, in, in, in Bolivia, um, and I think all over Bolivia, it's essentially urban spaces, modern spaces, quote unquote, professional spaces. Um, I guess the spaces when we're in the US that we as people of color associate with quote unquote white spaces, right? Um, those are associated with Spanish. Those are where you speak Spanish. Mm. Are your native language is where what you would speak back in the in, in your rural town outside of those spaces. And that has to do with that concept um, and really the forces of indigenous erasure and colonization that have to do with, okay, you guys are a thing of the past. Everything about you is a thing of the past. Um, it is, you know, not modern. It's not compatible with, with success. Uh, you want to strive for Spanish or English or whatever the European language is. So in, in Andean, Bolivia and La Paz and Cochabamba, that's definitely the case. Um, in the cities, you're going to hear less of your native language. Maybe only in spaces like where I I live on the outskirts of the city. Mm. I'm close to the rural countryside, so our market is a rural kind a rural kind of market. And so there there you hear Aymara. Now even within families, um, so my boyfriend uh, split grew up splitting his time between the city and their native community subsistence farming, and he tells me that. Um, you'll be on the bus, you know, heading back from the rural town. Everyone's speaking Aymara, but as you get closer to the city, people start speaking Spanish. Interesting. <laughs> it's like um, this invisible, yeah, yeah, it is It is very interesting. But, um, you know, there are ways we can push back about on that. And we try to um, hear it. Uh, young people, oh, that's another thing. You usually don't hear or see young people speaking Aymara or Quechua in public you see them speaking with their parents and not amongst each other. And that's part of that whole narrative that, you know, that's the thing of the past. It's, it's meant to die out. It's, it's, um, you know, not modern or whatever. Really? So yep. you have young people who are choosing to speak Spanish or maybe English and not speaking their family language. And, I don't know why I find that like I'm surprised because I feel well, it's I feel like I'm gonna say why I'm surprised I just okay, yeah, like, yeah. I, let's hear it I feel like young people kind of get it and I feel like young people are like repairing 
the errors of the past. And I feel like they're they're more open and ready to embrace, you know, they're ready to embrace their their past and their their heritage. And like, I'm I'm shocked. Well, maybe young people, more so young people in the U.S. Mm. I'm here in Bolivia and I've always felt this. It's a, it's a very, uh, the society is still unfortunately very racist, very classist, even though the majority of people are from the same background. It's just one of those, those scars from colonization, right? To scramble up to as high as whiteness as you can get, which is, you know, mixed here and, and some sort of semblance of, of associating with that. Um, but something I think you, people have to understand to realize why it's such a big deal to revitalize lang- our languages, Quechua and Aymara, is because of the deep shame and stigma. I mean, it's like, I can't even begin to describe it's, it's, it's so interwoven in society mm-hmm. here. I mean, there's so much shame, so much stigma. Um, you know, it's very easy. It's very hard to overcome that embarrassment. Oh, um, it is very strong here. And if all of society sort of treats it that way, it's very hard to overcome, even in your own family. You know, I mean, I, I got so many stories that I just, yeah, I mean, but that's, that's essentially it. But what we noticed with the nonprofit I started, the Quechua Project in my community in, in Virginia, in the D.C. area, is that ironically, immigration away from our homelands actually opened up opportunity. Mm. We grew up in the States with a, in a, in a, in a context that was less fiercely racist against our indigenous language, specifically so, um, than our parents. Mm-hmm. And in this environment where we're surrounded with a lot of, a lot of other people of color, where there's this, this, um, you know, just all of the, the, the cultural specifics of the u.s you know of, of, of revitalization the awareness of the need to decolonize and that's just talked about so openly and, and and um it's not so controversial um so we noticed that the people who grew up in that environment when we've done uh, we've done a small study have uh, feel less, less of that stigma and shame there's still a little bit of it there's still timidness there's still a little bit of shyness mm-hmm. but they're more open and willing Yes, and here in Bolivia, it's it's I think it's uh, it's harder, um, but there are a lot of people working at it. Um, just it's just um, it's not easy. It really isn't easy. But it's one of the reasons why I like to be on the streets. People see me as you know um, I'm a mixed woman, so I I got lighter features. They do not associate me with Aymara or Quechua. I like to speak Aymara on the street for that reason because mm-hmm. people are like shocked. I'm a young person. I'm light skinned. You know, I don't look like I'm I'm a farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important and very possible to, to start pushing back and healing society in those ways. We can each do little little things like that to help. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wow, that really hit me. And I'm I'm sad to hear that there is so much deeply rooted shame amongst communities there, because from where I'm sitting and I've shared this with you, you know, before we started recording, but from where I'm sitting, everything I've seen about Bolivian culture and people and traditions and language, it's just so beautiful. And it's so like, I'm in awe of everything I've seen, which is not a comprehensive oh, <laughs> list by any means. But I just, I, you know, I told you this, like, I just think it just... I don't know. I'm so fascinated and not in like a, not in a gawkery way or anything, but just like, (laughs) I'm so enthusiastic to learn about Bolivia and to, you know, hopefully someday to visit. So I'm, I'm really sad to hear that, you know, that, that there is this um, veil of shame in the community and, you know that's this that's what colonialism does and that's what you know this you know eurocentric ideals do to people of color and i i think that's why you know part of the reason why i feel shocked that you know that young people are are persisting with with this shame and with this with these values because you know, the because the world has changed so much, but you're right, you know, I'm in the US, I'm not in Bolivia. So it's it's a it's a completely different 
you know, um, way of looking at things. And I, I don't mean to inflect my U.S. view on another country. I, I don't mean that at all. But, um, you know, I hope that I hope that it gets better, like with all my heart. I really hope that it gets better. And I hope that I hope that young people see the value of their generation and and their her their heritage and and I hope that revitalization efforts are successful. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how these these efforts are taking place and and some things that are being done in Bolivia to revitalize um, Aymara and Quechua and to you know instill pride in people and kind of lift this heavy well, of shame. Yeah. So luckily, thank goodness, there ha well, things have been getting better. I know it's the difference from when I was little to now. And part of that, there's been this sort of uh, cultural cultural revolution, especially on the Andean side. And that's helped a lot. Um, but, you know, after the 2003 gas wars, there, uh, out of something terrible, often something good comes of it, right? There's usually a silver lining. In the gas wars, there were a bunch of civilians, Aymaras, who were killed um, by the military. Um, they were unarmed civilian protesters. And um, out of that rage and, and pain, uh, were born, were, was born this collective of young Aymaras, urban Aymaras, who started rapping and, and um, started doing hip hop in Aymara language. Cool. So they had grown up, what they tell me, because um, I'm, yeah, because I'm an art activist, so this is these are the circles I run in. These are the people that I work with here. Um, and from what they tell me is that they grew up, um, you know, trying to get cassette tape. You know, this is back before the internet, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and Bolivia too is is a country that ha is landlocked. Has, has historically been one of the quote unquote, um, however they want to measure this, poorest countries um, in 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 the hemisphere and the Americas and all that. So all the statistics, right? So you don't have access necessarily to like your CDs, your, the newest stuff. Things take a long time to get here. Mm -hmm. But when they were younger, they so people started bringing cassette tapes of hip hop and rap. Mm -hmm. And they were so blown away and they felt so connected to this. Even if they didn't understand everything that was being said, they understood the sentiment. They understood, um, they felt empowered mm -hmm. by this by this music. And, um, you know, so that in, in these urban Aymara spaces, so places where people are of indigenous heritage, um, but are growing up in the city, they're children of campesinos, children of people who work the countryside. So they're discriminated against um, because they're associated with those indigenous and rural spaces. Um, they felt really inspired and they felt really empowered by hip hop. Come the gas wars, people are outraged. And some of these young people start, they're older, they start saying, well, how come we can't rap in our own languages? Mm. Um, and so this whole big movement began. And um, to this day, there is still that there are people also singing and doing all kinds of pop and modern music and, and urban music and hip hop in their native languages. And I think that is a very powerful way to destigmatize and to help youth see that their native language doesn't have to be stuck in the past as society's always told them it doesn't have to be stuck back in in, in their rural communities. Um, mm -hmm. It can also be compatible with, and it can also lead and be an important part of your modern, your modern spaces, your urban spaces, your reality, part of your studies. So I think that's a very powerful way right. um, that it's being done in Bolivia. But there are also um, folks who maybe aren't part of that urban <laughs> youth movement. But uh, there's a guy. Um, uh, well, for one one of the the rap groups that I talk with a lot here, that one one of the first is, is Nacion Rap. Um, they were born out of the collective that was formerly Wayna Rap. Um, and then there's also a teacher online named Elias Ahate Rivera. And he's got a huge following on Facebook. And he's more from like the the, the rural sector represents that. But he teaches Aymara. There's all kinds of groups on, on social media. And um, that's that's on the Bolivian side. And then on the U.S. side, which I think now especially after COVID, we're used to like this idea of the world being more virtual. It becomes harder and harder to sort of separate these spaces by physical space mm -hmm. because um, in the Virginia, DC and uh, Bolivian community, I know some researchers have described what we've created there as a third space. 
So we basically created like a little Bolivia <laughs> over there. <laughs> but in that little Bolivia, in that space, um, we do things like the Quechua Project, which is the nonprofit I lead. And we, we, we are revitalizing or ensuring that Quechua thrives a young, among our young people by destigmatizing through media, in this case, social media. But we also do some other media as well. And, um, you know, that helps them recognize the need for revitalization, but also their association of Quechua with their modern spaces, with their technological spaces, with success, which is really, really important. And um, we've had some supporters over the years. Um, and I have to give a shout out to the MSU, Michigan State University, University Multilingual Lab and Megan Driver who's um, a, a researcher and a professor on heritage language. And she has supported uh, this, this uh, new film that we're producing that's related mm -hmm. to all this. So I think media is a really strong way. It's a really strong tool. Um, and these are some ways that we're using it, but ultimately the way it's happening is through this feeling of the people sometimes coming out of terrible, terrible things that happen, but then um, we're forced to do something and make a choice. Do we act or do we not? Right. I'd love to hear more about this film. Yeah. Um, I'm producing a film that follows this phenomenon. Every year, scores of young people from this largest Bolivian, largest Quechua community in the U.S., totally American like I am, right? Grew up in the <laughs> States, um, travel back to their indigenous communities in a rural section of Cochabamba called the Valle Alto to participate in harvest ceremonies. And I mean, that involves all kinds of things, right? Our like code switching, our abilities to live in two worlds, you know, back when they're home, the women will often wear our traditional skirts and braids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, th these, these contrasts between these worlds that their parents grew up in subsistence farming, and now they're here in DC, holding degrees I mean I think it's just a, a beautiful coming home it's mm -hmm. uh, for right now I'm calling the project Kuti our great migration Kuti in Quechua means to return mm -hmm. and uh, the harvest ceremonies which are also known as carnavales are boisterous full of music <laughs> full of very spicy coplas because the themes are thanking Pachamama for all she's given us it's our rainy season where we're, we're we're singing for her to to, to keep giving us right mm -hmm. the stuff so our, a lot of the songs are about fertility and they're very spicy and they're a lot of fun um it's a wonderful wonderful time so we're going to capture this phenomenon we're going to start filming um uh, during the harvest festivals at the end of this month in february which start after martes de chaya which is an important date in andean bolivia chaya is a way that we think Pachamama, which is um, sort of like the mother of the universe and mm -hmm. the mother of Earth, um, for all she gives us, we're going to capture it and then we're going to celebrate it um, in this film. Exciting. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, me me either. <laughs> we've, got lot, we've, we've got a lot of work to do. We're, we're starting the filming in Cochabamba at the end of this month. Mm -hmm. We got to do some filming back in Virginia uh, in the middle of this year. And then we've got post-production. If anyone is interested, shameless plug here, if anyone is interested in supporting this film, there will be a GoFundMe uh, going out uh, shortly. And you can find information on shanainofuentes.com. Since I've been doing this podcast, um, I think Pachamama is one of the one of my favorite words that I've learned. Um oh. Yeah, I did an episode on uh, Quechua in Peru. And, you know, she taught me that word Pachamama. And I was like, this is such a, it's so cute. Like, it's so sweet. Right? And it's, <laughs> I adore it. <laughs> I adore it. Um, so we always give give thanks to Pachamama um, wherever we are. Yes. I do, at least. Now that I know, now that I know, <laughs> I try to. Um, yeah. <laughs> so something that you may just let me know if we've if you want to talk more about this or not, because you I think you kind of alluded to this earlier. But um, when we talked before sure. this episode, you said that um, 
you mentioned how language connects or divorces you from a culture. And I thought that was a really striking statement when you said it. And I was wondering if you could expound more on that. If you haven't already, if you feel like you already did, you don't have to, you know, we can just, you know, go into the next topic. But if there's anything that you want to mention or elaborate. Yes, absolutely. I think it's really important to drive home um, in this society, at least in Bolivian Andean society. Um, it definitely divorces or connects you. Since most people, the vast majority of people are of indigenous heritage, come from indigenous towns, are of this identity and background, the way they separate themselves to decide what one way you, you identify someone as still belonging to that community or not, or as an indig- being identified as an indigenous person is through their language. Um, and Bolivia, like I mentioned before, unfortunately, is still dealing with a lot of um, deep colonial scars. And, um, you know, and this includes people of the same backgrounds enacting violence on each other because they see them as others. Why? Because they, they have markers of indigeneity while the other folks have maybe assimilated into European, um, a European lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, this is... um. Uh, just something that's systematic. This is something that was, um, is by design. Um, when I was, I, I produced a, an amateur short film uh, previous to this, and I was investigating why I found records of my family living in two places, very different places, three days walk from each other, um, and the same, same exact people, same exact time period in two different places. Hmm. Well, I, I interviewed a professor from NYU who's an expert on this time play period in place in, in, in the Andes. And he explained that our communities, our society, our civilization, um, the way that we were able to make such um, prosperous uh, societies um, was to take advantage of the different the vastly different um, altitudes, right? The very harsh, broken landscape, we use that to our advantage mm. so that people in the highlands could have fruits and whatnot. And the people in the lowlands could eat like chuños and papas and meat and whatnot. Ah. And we had a very intricate way of living and include, and that included migration, included nomad, not completely nomadic, but we did a lot of migration. A lot of people had territory that was non-contiguous, meaning our territories were, separated by land, but they were at different elevation points. We could take advantage of these, you know, the, the landscapes. Mm-hmm. But with Spanish colonization, he explained, you know, the, the Spanish wanted us to, to stay in city centers. They wanted to move us to pueblos, to 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 town centers, mm-hmm. and to sort of change that, that way of life. And that way of life, too, was not market-based. It was all done without money, but yet it produced very prosperous um, uh, and big civilizations. But right. With the introduction of, of market economies and, and whatnot, it made more sense to the Spanish to, to have a stay in one place. Um, and so this idea of people who live in these town centers, people who live in these city centers, those are you know associated with, with, with uh, non-Indigenous life. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of discrimination could come from and, and even violence come from there mm-hmm. against folks who still live in the countryside. You know, so you've got all these people from the same background, from the same indigenous heritage. But when you can't, if you can speak to each other, I mean, you're even if the person sees, oh, you're not, you're not wearing traditional dress, you don't look like you're a farmer. But they speak, speak to you in your language. All of a sudden, they open up to you and say, oh, you're one of us. Mm-hmm. I have trust. I would see that with my grandmother, who grew up in the city but spoke Aymara because it was her native language. She didn't speak Spanish until she was like five or six years old. Mm-hmm. Um. She'd go to the market. She wasn't wearing traditional dress anymore, but they could speak with each other. And that was your ticket to belonging. Myself, a mixed woman uh, or a mixed little girl at that time could (laughs) tag along and then be recognized. Oh, she's not a foreigner. She's one of us. Right. Language, I think, divorces you or connects you um, to your people in, in a big way. It also helps you recognize yourself, who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Bolivia, because so many people are from the same background, that's often a way that they distinguish whether or not you're considered 
uh, you're relegated to the to to the indigenous class or the the upper class. You speak mm-hmm. their language and you don't. You know, yeah. It's a little bit more mixed nuanced than that, obviously. But that's an overview. I would love to know just really quickly, what is something that you feel is really special about Bolivia? I mean, we've been talking this whole time and there are so many special things, um, but maybe something that you want people to know, like people outside of Bolivia or outside of the uh, La Paz who have never been there. Um, what's something that's special to you that you'd want them to know about? My family's from the highlands, from the Andes. However, and there is a whole swath of Bolivia that's also part of the Amazon has a very different culture and society. However, we're all part of one country now, and it's a country that's landlocked. It's the country with the highest indigenous American population in the world. It's a country that for centuries has always been marked by this designation as the poorest, highest infant mortality rate, all the things, right? Mm. And I think we've always sort of been labeled in that way. Yet when you come here, the people are so rich in culture and belief in um, ways of being. No, it's not, no utopia, right? I mean, no society is any utopia. Any society, any culture, any family is going to have its problems, right? But overall, I think that is such a testament to our beauty and to just human um, worth and value. You know, having these, you know, like, quote unquote, always being, you know, labeled as a poor country, as a country that's not developed yet. It's a country that's so rich in, in um knowledge and in, in in food sovereignty and ways of being with Pachamama, with our world, our universe, our lands, so that we can maintain this way of living that's not harmful uh, to her, to us, or to the rest of the world. Um, and just our love for each other and it's such a communal society. I think that's what's really special about Bolivia. In some ways, maybe us being uh separated from the rest of the world and quote-unquote industrialization and quote-unquote modernization has maybe has some of that benefit um it's a beautiful special wild free place um Mm. that is again by no means any utopia but it's really really special and i think recognizing that and valuing valuing how beautiful we are as a people, you know, we're not, we're not um, less than, we're not inferior, we're not somehow less, you know, advanced or less smart or something just because of all of these statistics that exist about us. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do, or that's, that's really what our language revitalization is about as well. Like, we are worthy, the things that make you, you, that for centuries society here has told us is inferior because it's attached to your you know, what makes you you your culture your language your way of dress your way of living is somehow less than that's not true and it's important and it's special and it's um valuable and that's i think that's what i think that's that's the that's how i'd answer that question yeah <laughs> yeah and shauna thank you so much for sharing for sharing that. And thank you for this whole episode. Thank you for sharing so much of your rich culture and your rich heritage and your rich languages. And I am so grateful and so happy. My heart is so full right now, having spoken to you and and learned more from you about, about, about all of these things. I could ask you an hour, another hour's worth of questions. (laughs) (laughs) And I could talk for another hour. (laughs) But you know, you've talked about the you've talked about the Quechua project throughout this episode. But please let us know anything, anything maybe that you didn't get to mention about it. And most importantly, let us know how we can get in touch. Let us know how we can support and how we can find you. 
So shanainofuentes.com, just my name, my first name, S-H-A-N-A, and my last name, I-N-O-F-U-E-N-T-E-S.com is where you can find out more information about how to support what we're doing um, through our art activism, um, through our media work. I actually have a consulting firm. I do indigenous consulting, so far mostly for researchers, but we're open to all kinds of clients. And I think this kind of consulting is sorely needed in the world. Um, we also do, uh, we're the only place in the US <laughs> that provides professional certified translations between Quechua English and Aymara and English, both oral and written. We also mm -hmm. do trainings for people who are interested in working in these, in uh, with these communities, especially if you're not from them, in ways that truly are self-empowering for us and mutually inspiring and mutually enriching. And of course, I'm creating that hub. I, I may not have mentioned earlier, but I'm creating a hub called Andy's Flix Plus, <laughs> where that is for uh, creative material made by native Andean artists, but especially tailored for the diaspora. So we're talking things translated into English, you know, hip hop music videos, all this stuff that is by us, for us, but really also for the rest of the world too, because I don't think a lot of people um, have had a chance to to share in our in our rich culture. Yeah. And of course I'm producing that that film this year. So shanainofuentes.com is where you can go to find out this information, to support the film, to support this kind of work, and for the specific Quechua language revitalization in the nation's capital in the DC area, among the, the largest Quechua, largest Bolivian community in the US. For that, you can go to quechuaproject.com. That's Q-U-E-C-H-U-A project.com. Um, you can also find us on Instagram if you actually want to be entertained and, and engage with us in the ways that we uh, make trying to make Getcha cool again. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy that you have all of these these outlets and you are so busy and you are doing your part. And this is amazing. I will add the links that you shared into the show notes for this episode so that people can get in touch with you. They can just click and get in touch with you right away. Thank you, Elle. And I have to thank you so much for creating this platform and for, give, for creating these spaces where people like us, communities like us, have a chance to share and tell our story and to, um, to really share. Because I think that's part of the human experience and what makes the, helps heal the world and make it a, a better place. But thank you so much. And chata agradeceki, which is thank you so much in, in Quechua. Um, because it's not for me, it's for my people. And it's not just for my people, but hopefully an inspiration for all people to um, to have self-love and to recognize their value and be able to bring their full selves to the table. And if I may, I will end with a little piece of a song that my grandmother taught me when I asked her to teach me how to sing in Aymara. First she laughed because she was like, why do you want to know? You know, like, <laughs> you know like she, she thought it was, um, I'm sitting here living in the U.S., speaking English. Why in the world do I need Aymara, right? But anyway, her little mixed granddaughter asked her, and so she taught me this song. Which is Uka Chauru Hutaskiway. Amoya si panyadi hutaskiway. Mamanakatata naka amoya sipanyani hutaskiway. It means this great day will come. We've got to remember this great day will come. Mothers and fathers, it's a way of saying everyone listen to me. This great day will come. And it's a message of hope. So I just wanted to leave that um, with all of us today. Oh, thank you so much for sharing a song. I love that. I love that. And I've, I'm so like, I feel so honored that you would share that with me, with my listeners, with, you know, with their community, because they're powerful words. And hope is a powerful thing. You know, it is. Oh Thank you Elle, for giving space for that. <laughs> Thank you. Of <laughs> course. Of course. Um, I usually I usually ask the question if anyone has any 
you know, any words or any advice or anything that they want to share. But I think I don't know how we're going to top that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that'll do it. (laughs) So in the, on that note, Shauna, thank you so much again for this conversation. And um, I do want to ask you my, my, my secret last, 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 last question. (laughs) (laughs) If you are in, in, uh, we're in the city where you are, you're in, um, in Bolivia. So in La Paz and you are you've been talking to someone for approximately an hour and a half and you've been enjoying the conversation (laughs) that you've been having with this person and you are about to go your separate ways what is the best way in La Paz to say goodbye well if we're speaking Spanish it would be chao chao which is not Spanish right but that's what we use here chao or um it would be ya yeah, yeah. So I actually say there's a goodbyes are usually pretty long here. Like mire, mire, my way, sarawa, sarawa. I'm going, I'm going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then technically in Aymara, how you would say goodbye is not goodbye. We say until we meet again, which is hikisin kama. Hikisin kama. Hikisin kama. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much, so much, so much. And I will be talking to you soon. Bye.